Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. We're going to have Leslie Visser, who's going to join us in a little bit. I'm going to talk about Leslie's career, which is fantastic. Um, she has a, she's had a fantastic career. Uh, I think there's, there's still a lot more she probably wants to do. I'm not sure that she's as active as she used to be, but I know that she's been at CBS for over 30 years and been in broadcasting for over 40 years. And now she lives with her husband in South Florida and doing well. And God bless her. God bless you for staying clean, staying within the rules of what it is we're trying to accomplish now. I saw something today that was kind of interesting. They're talking about the NFL draft, which is tonight, 8 o'clock Eastern time on ESPN and the NFL Network. And I'm looking forward to it. Oh, you're done, done straight. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's, I think it's going to be incredible. I think it's going to be a, a pleasure to do it, uh, to watch it, to see it, uh, to you know, play the guessing games of who's doing what. And we all have our favorite teams. You're sitting out there saying, uh, I'm a big fan of the Cincinnati Bengals, and I know that Joe Burrow is going to be our pick at number one. And you're probably going to be right. And I'm a big fan of the Washington Redskins. And I think that Chase Young is going to be our pick with the second overall pick of the draft. And I'm good with that. But after that, see this? It's called tossing the coin. We don't know what Detroit's going to do and how the rest of the draft is going to fall into place. Here's one thing you can guarantee. The commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, is not going to get booed. At least he won't be able to hear it. Fans always give him the business every time he steps up at the podium to make the introductory speech. If I'm Roger Goodell, I'm smiling. I'm making 35 to $40 million a year. I can take it. It ain't going to bother me. I got a broad back. And so we go forward from there. Look, when you're a public figure like Roger Goodell, you're going to hear it. You're going to hear it. It's the way it is. Take it or leave it. You're going to hear it. I... I like Roger Goodell. I think he's a very good commissioner. I think he does what he has to do. He has marketed this league very well since taking over for Paul Tagliabu. And he learned, and most people don't even know it, he was actually working in the sports information office, I think, or public relations office of the New York Jets. That's how he got involved in the NFL to begin with, way back in the day. His family is, has got a background of politics, so he elected not to go that route, and that's fine. Let's see if Leslie's available to us. We'll talk to her and bring her on the program. 
Uh, Leslie, it's Howard David. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. How are you doing? We are live and in color. <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm in. Just tell me, are, are we officially up and running? Or we are, we are up and running and ready to rock and roll, and everything you said now, we say from now on in, is going to be held against you. <laughs> well, it won't be the first time. <laughs> so how are you these days? You staying, uh, you staying safe? Doing well, staying safe. Phyllis and I are, uh, we are uh, quarantined by ourselves. We got one set, we got one kid that's up in Westchester, another kid who's down in your neck of the woods in Boca, Boca Raton, Florida. And everybody's safe and secure, and that's all we can hope for. Yeah, I will say this. Um, you know, some things you wish maybe for a little time off, but now Bob and I are fighting over the clicker. Howard, I don't know if you and Phyllis have this. I cannot watch one more Bank heist movie. I can't. I can't. Bank heist. No, you got to be watching either one of the Godfather movies or one of the Rocky movies. Come on. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the beginning, along with, uh, I mean, Caddyshack. How many times do guys have to see Caddyshack? Really? What's the over-under? Well, I'm hoping that your husband doesn't dress like Rodney Dangerfield in that movie. <laughs> no, but we're ready for whack-a-mole or whatever that thing is. But, yeah, it's... Uh, you know, it certainly changed our sports landscape. Um, I don't know about you, but our CBS meetings, they're all on Zoom. I've done interviews on Zoom. And, and I don't know how much, of, I don't know if we'll all be traveling as much. Certainly not for interviews. When this comes back, you know, it's much cheaper and it's quick to just do a Zoom interview. So, I, I mean, how do you see it changing? I, you know, I just listen to what the doctors say. I listen to the scientists. Uh, I don't listen to the politicians. Although I must say that Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, makes an awful lot of sense. But that aside, um, uh, your husband graduated from Harvard, and that figures. I mean, you're a, a New England woman. Uh, here you are, and he played basketball at Harvard. You know what's interesting about that? Before you go into your the discussion about your husband is that when I started in broadcasting, I started doing Princeton's games, football and basketball. And my first basketball game that I worked for was up at Harvard, and we had to walk five flights up the stairs with this heavy equipment before I got, and sat in the end zone looking through you know, the glass backboard to call the game. That was a challenge. Yeah, I used to tease um, because my producer, of course, you worked on Monday night, Westwood won yourself all those years, which I had the privilege of working with you one year. But remember, the producer for Monday night was Kenny Wolf, of course. Right. And Kenny Wolf had played at baske played basketball at Harvard after my husband, um, Bob Knute is his name. He was the uh, captain in 69, right before James Brown. So I actually covered, when I just started at the Globe, and I covered a few of James Brown's games. He had a big afro then, and he kind of liked the ladies, you know. Now he's so modest, and he's kind of a missionary, but he was, uh, he was I guess everybody in the 70s was a little more wild, but then Kenny Wolf played on the team right after that. So I used to tease those guys. I don't, I'm sure when you went up there, 
for Princeton basketball, you remember that the basketball court at Harvard was above, in the IAB, the indoor athletic building, it was above the pool. Right. And so all the players would smell of chlorine after <laughs> the game. <laughs> but uh, I met Bob at the Kentucky Derby. I met him through our buddy Rick Pitino, and I had gone, I was covering the Derby, and I went to Rick Pitino's box just to say hello to him, and uh, he said to me, it was kind of embarrassing, he said to me, Leslie, I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine who was the captain of Harvard basketball. Well, this was 11 years ago, I guess, and at that time I had covered probably 27 NCAA tournaments, so I stuck my hand out and I said, excuse me, if you'd been the captain of Harvard basketball, I'm sure I would have heard of you, <laughs> to which the first thing Bob ever said to me was, you must have missed four years. Oh, oh, <laughs> cold. I said, well, he can handle me. Well, I remember James Brown as a player. I remember Kenny Wolf as a player because I was broadcasting Princeton at that time, and Princeton, along with Penn, during that stretch, were the two best teams in the Ivy League for uh, about a 10-year stretch. Uh, and I stay in touch with uh, the great Pete Carrill, who coached Princeton. Uh, he's now 89 years old. Uh, he's still as ornery as ever, and he's dealing with arthritis in his right knee. Aside from that, he's still great. Yeah, he was really, and I was privileged because I started covering college basketball so early that I really got to know, not like you at all, but I got to know a lot of those great coaches. I remember once my great buddy since passed away, uh, Rick Majerus, he made me go with him to uh, El Paso because he said, I must meet Don Haskins, of course, because of his legendary, uh, when he started the first all-black team in the Final Four, or the championship, and he said, Leslie, you must meet Don Haskins. So I, I really got to meet, uh, you know, I even met Hank Iba, I met um, uh, Jack Hartman, all the, uh, really, some, some of those really early greats. Never met Fred Taylor, but certainly all the Knight and Dean Smith and all the greats that we've come to know. And I just, for me, I always found college basketball coaches the most interesting. Um, I think we share that football's our favorite game, but didn't you love meeting those coaches in the Ivy League? Yeah, um, and, and there were a lot of great, I mean, one time I remember Harvard um, had, um, I want to say, um, with Casey Jones, a head coach at Harvard there for a short period of time, and his assistant coach was a guy named Satch Sanders. Yeah, I thought Satch, I mean, was Casey the head coach? Satch was definitely the head coach. Oh, no, it was the so other way around. Was, you're right, you're right. Yeah, I had it, was, it, I had it backwards. It was, it was so much fun, you know, you got to, and for me, growing up in Boston, um, you know, Boston just had so many legendary athletes. We didn't know that other cities, you know. I mean, in New York, you had the equivalent, but, you know, my childhood was Ted Williams, number four, Bobby Orr, and Bill Russell. So, I mean, there's a Mount Rushmore right there, and uh, it, it was good because if you were a fan of sports, I, I grew up listening to Kirk Gowdy do the Red Sox on cheap transistors, but people authentically knew sports, and they loved sports, and for me, uh, it, it was a true passion. You've been in the business for something like 45 years. What did you start when you were 10? <laughs> no, how about this? <laughs> I, um, some player, you know, players 
don't care. And, and I had a cap on at the Super Bowl, not this past one, in Atlanta two years ago. So some player, you know, was giving me the, yo, baby, yo, baby, what are you doing after the game? And I looked at him and I said, are you kidding? I'm on Medicare. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Very good. He ran, he ran across the field, you know, like Usain Bolt, like, ah! Yeah, I started at the Globe when I was 20. I started as an intern my junior year in college. 19? Maybe I was 19. So, yeah, I've seen a few decades, so have you. Yeah, well, I, I uh, started in the NBA doing Nets games and then Bucks games, and then um, I, uh, I asked uh, Senator Cole, who owned the Milwaukee Bucks, if he'd let me out of my last two years of my contract because our daughter had uh, our first grandchild, and that was in New York, and I just couldn't see working in Milwaukee while I had a grandchild in New York. And so I asked Senator Cole to let me out of the contract, and he was great. And he said, okay, I don't want to stand in the way of your family. And then about a month after I had left my contract with Milwaukee, I get contacted by uh, Intercom Radio about doing Boston Celtic games. And I went, okay. So I went up, to, and at the time, that was Rick Pitino's first year coaching Boston, and I had to kind of go to his, his uh, apartment and get the okay from him before I was, uh, I was able to accept the job. So I walked into his apartment. He looks at me. I look at him. He goes, I know you. And I said, I know you, coach. It was when he was coaching the Knicks, I was doing the Nets. So our paths crossed yeah. several times. No, he always said he loved you. You know what was a funny story with Rick? Um, I've... I've known Rick the longest of anybody in sports because I was his beat writer when I was at the Boston Globe and I was 21 and he was at Boston University. And so I've been, you know, all seven of his final fours, covered all his titles. And I remember when he went into the Hall of Fame, I don't know if you know this story, but uh, they had a, they have a room usually for every person who's going in to take pictures with their family. And so Rick and his family were setting up in their little room and Larry Bird came in, and Rick said, oh, now Larry Bird walks through the room. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah, it was funny, but it was, uh, you know, I always thought you got your start. To, how many people know that you actually got your start as a disc jockey in Libya? That's true. That's true. Yeah, I was working, I for, I was working for Armed Forces Radio, and I had just gone to broadcasting school through the armed forces in Indianapolis, which was a joint service school, all four branches of the service. And so I was stationed, my permanent duty station was in uh, Fort Worth, Texas at Carswell Air Force Base. So I volunteered to go to broadcasting school, which is also journalism school. And uh, I would say there were 55 people in the class going in, mostly Army, mostly Air Force, and then a few Navy guys and a couple of Marines. And the object was you had to have at least a 75 average every week. Otherwise, they kicked you out of the school. And I don't mean 74.9. I mean 75. And so we started with 55, 26 graduated. I didn't get my, I didn't get my orders to go until I went back to my base. Two weeks later, I get my duty. I'm going to Tripoli, Libya. And I said, well, this is a great place for a Jewish guy to go. <laughs> Were the songs... I mean, 75 was the year I graduated from uh, Boston College, so 75 is seared in my brain also, the 
Red Sox, uh, of course, in the World Series. But I remember the songs were all over the place then. Like you'd have Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and then you'd have Barry Manilow, right. or whoever sang Mandy. And so do you remember, would, um, would people want to hear Rolling Stone songs? or Yeah, I mean, some. Some of it. I was doing the more. I was, uh, you know, you've heard of Good Morning Vietnam. I was Good Morning Tripoli. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, so I. Didn't I know that. Yeah, so I. Oh, you're right. I was a disc jockey, and uh, the, the uh, captain that was in charge of our detachment said, you know, play whatever you want. Uh, just consider who your audience is. It's mostly Air Force guys and their families, uh, some families, but it's mostly single Air Force guys or guys that are there without their families. So play the music that you think they want to hear. And so, you know, I, I was a big fan of The Temptations, so I played a lot of that. Uh, yeah. You know, played uh, Neil Diamond, played The Fifth Dimension, you know, stuff that was popular. And so I get a uh, uh, Our wing commander, I don't know how far into black history you go, but our wing commander was a guy named Daniel James Jr. He was known as Chappie James. He was a, um, a colonel at the time, and he was sent, it was the, during the turbulence 60s. We, I got there in, in 69, um, and he was our wing commander that was brought there to kind of quell the racial uprising that existed on the base, and they figured, well, here's a black officer that could come in and fix the problem, and he did. But he came into my control room one morning and said, Sergeant, I'm uh, Colonel James. And I said, oh, I know who you are. The guy was 6'4", 260 pounds. You couldn't miss him. <laughs> so, and it, it was, it was uh, such a turbulent time, you know, the, the late 60s. Yeah. And, uh, I went to high school in western Massachusetts. Well, my family moved 11 times. My mom finally got divorced on the 11th move. But I went to high school out in the Berkshires, and it was so... Um, it was so interesting to be impre an impressionable teenager then, you know, because um, the high, well, you know, the area, Amherst and Mount Holyoke and sure. Smith sure. and New Mass. And so they would let us off high school to go to uh, civil rights marches in Washington or equal rights marches. So I just thought uh, it was a privilege to be a young person in the late 60s because there were so many political views and there was like there was room for them. Well, I get it. I, um, uh, one morning, uh, I was giving the time. We had a news guy that would do the news at the top of the, of the hour. And so we came to 8 o'clock, and I said, for you Army guys uh, and you Air Force guys, it's 0800. For you Navy guys, it's, uh, it's 8 bells. And for you officers, the little hands on the 8 and the big hands on the 12. And so, <laughs> so I, Leslie, this is a true story. I get a call in the control room. From this second lieutenant. Lieutenant says, Sergeant, I'm going to have your stripes. You've just insulted officers. And I said, Lieutenant, do you have a sense of humor? Really? Well, he decided he was going to take it to the next level. He calls his boss, who was a colonel, who then calls Colonel James. Colonel James calls me in my control room, asks me what I said, and I told him. And he said, well, that's funny. I said, I thought so, but the second lieutenant didn't. He said, I'll take care of it. That later that night, a friend, my friends and I are going to the NCO club for dinner. This second lieutenant comes up to me. He goes, uh, Sergeant, um, I'm the lieutenant. They called you. I want to apologize. And I said, for what? Well, because uh, I bothered you when you were working. I said, you know what, lieutenant? No harm, no foul. Forget about it. Colonel James called his boss, reamed him out, 
His, that guy's boss called him out and ringed him out, and this guy had to put his tail between his legs and apologize. <laughs> it was silly. What a, uh, I can't wait till you and Phyllis and Bob and I go out. Bob was in um, the Army, and uh, he had the, the low draft. Did you have a low draft number? I, no, I was, I was, I was, uh, a friend of mine worked for the draft board, called me and said, I'm going to be drafted within four months, and I decided not to wait. So I enlisted in the Air Force instead of going into the Army. Uh, well, I had a, I know we're not on sports here for a second, but so what, I've known you so long. Um, Bob and I went to see, we were married, this is a true story, Howard, we were married for five or six years, and we went to see, do you remember the movie Argo? Sure. Uh, yeah, the declassified about the hostages staying yep. uh, in Iran and the Canadian embassy. All right, so we go to see that movie, and the movie ends where Ben Affleck is at uh, Langley at the CIA, and he says, gee, I'd like to bring my son to the uh, medal ceremony. And the guy says, no, 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 you know we're quiet here. Uh, if you want applause, join the circus. That's the last line of the movie. So now we've been married for five years, and we left the movie theater, and Bob said to me, oh, I have that medal. <laughs> and I said, uh, pardon me? He said, yeah, I have that medal. And he went and dug it out, you know, at the bottom of a closet, and it says, the Central Intelligence Agency thanks Robert Knuth for his covert work in Laos and Cambodia. How about that? I married a spook. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie Visser joins us on Howard David Live on our podcast. You've worked the Final Four, you've worked Super Bowls, you've worked Olympics, World Series, Triple Crown of Horse Racing, U.S. Open Tennis, probably the bocce playoffs at some point in your life. But of all the things, and you mentioned earlier that we had worked together, you were doing sidelines for a Monday night game that I did with Boomer Esiason in Dallas. And I still have the picture of you and I, Boomer, and Troy Aikman in the booth. We did. That was uh, the first time a woman had ever been in a booth as an analyst, and you guys were so great to me. I, I, you know, I had so many thoughts colliding, and, you know, both you, Boomer, and Troy just made room for me, and doing those games, uh, it was such a different set of muscles to flex, which I had to do going from the Globe, was writing on deadline, to television, was thinking on deadline. But, yeah, I did have... There really wasn't much I, I hadn't covered. My favorite day of the year is the semifinals of the Final Four because four schools have a chance. The whole country pretty much has been involved in the tournament, either picking teams or having their own college involved. Uh, and I'm, I'm someone who I like the NFC and the AFC championships better than I do the Super Bowl. I mean, I... People used to say to me, Leslie, what's your favorite place in America? And I'd say Rambo in January. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was... Yeah, go ahead, please. I, I was going to say, I thought it was a, a privilege to be there, and I, I feel that, that it's just stronger for me uh, when it is the championship in one of the towns, uh, in one of the cities. Although, you know, you and I both have been at a lot of Super Bowls, uh, I, I was uh, on the sideline for when the Patriots, after 9-11, they won the next Super Bowl, and Bob Kraft said, today we are all Patriots, and I, I've been on a few sidelines of good ones, but they're not always that good. I, I don't know. What, what's your memory of them? Well, to me, I'm with you. 
My favorite stadium in the NFL is Lambeau Field. Um, I've always considered it the Yankee Stadium of the National Football League with all the history that's attached to that stadium. And I, I was there for an NFC Championship game against Carolina when it was nine below zero. And, and I was working with Matt Millen at the time. And uh, Matt loved to be on the field before the game as I did. But I had my daughter Danny with us down on the field. And she had never been on the field uh, of, a, of a game. And she said, wow, this is, I said, it's nine below zero. I'm going upstairs. She said, well, she stayed with Matt. <laughs> because. But you know what? That game, uh, I think I'd already known you then. But I, I also covered that game um, for CBS. And uh, do you remember that Carolina led at halftime? Yep. Carrie Collins, remember? Yep. And, it was, and then afterwards, I always remember that scene that uh, Reggie White running around with the Hallis Trophy and they're playing Roll Out the Barrel. <laughs> and I mean, it was just so glorious. What was it? Their first time in decades, right, that they went back. And I remember you also at the Super Bowl in New Orleans. So you don't even remember how much we've hung around together. Oh, yeah, quite a bit. Well, that, I, my, that, first, my first Super Bowl was in New Orleans. It was when Green Bay played the Patriots with Bill Parcells as the head coach at the time. And Yeah, wasn't that after that NFC championship? Uh, yeah, exactly yeah, right. That was, when, and everyone thinks, of course, Brett must have been the uh, MVP, but it was Desmond Howard. Exactly, with a 97-yard kickoff return for a touchdown. Yeah, but, but wait, I'm sorry. Tell me your story. Yeah, because I when, remember you. There. No, when I, my recollection, because it was my first Super Bowl, and I was so keyed up, uh, you know, I wasn't nervous. I was just anxious, and, and I was prepared, um, and I spent like two weeks preparing for this. This was like, this was the crown jewel in my career to that point, was to do a Super Bowl. So I go into the press box with Matt. Uh, we, we walk from our hotel to the Superdome. And walk in the, and so Matt wanted to go down in the field. I said, you know what? I'll be down in the field a little while. I want to go up in the, in the booth. Got my stuff together, put it in the booth, and then was looking for a place where I could just be by myself. So I picked a booth that was empty and sat in the booth and was looking out on the field. It's a good two hours before the game. And the door opens up, and who walks in but Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner of the NFL. And I knew him, and he and knew me. Oh, I, it was a booth that I just walked into down the, down the line. I didn't realize it was the commissioner's booth. I've never heard that. Well, no, so it's a true story. So I'm in there minding my own business, and Tagliboo walks in, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm really kind of collecting my thoughts. It's my first Super Bowl, and I, I, I'm very keyed up, and I just want to kind of relax. He said, stay here. Stay as long as you want. I'm going to go get some coffee. You want some coffee? And I said... Uh, sure. He leaves. Five minutes later, the former broadcasting uh, g guy that ran the broadcasting in the NFL, Val Pinchbeck, comes in. Said, Howard, what are you doing here? I said, kind of collecting my thoughts and so on. He said, well, you know, this is the commissioner's box. I said, I just found that out, but the commissioner was just here. He'll be back in a minute. Well, Tagliabue walks in with two cups of coffee. He puts one down in front of me. Pinchback looks at me and he says... You have some juice, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is such a great story because it, it might have been a, a little difficult to collect your thoughts when the commissioner of the NFL walks in. Well, it was, it, was, it, was, it was one of those things that, you know, like you. I mean, you've got a thousand memories, but a, but a handful of them stand out more than the others, whether it's a particular event, whether it's a particular athlete, 
I mean, you, I mean, you had to, look, I've talked to Susan Waldman about this, and she kicked down a bunch of walls to get where she wound up. And the same with you. When you made that transition from the Boston Globe to broadcasting, how many walls did you have to kick down? Well, it was interesting for me because um, when I went to the Globe and then the decade I was there was voted the number one sports section of all time. It, and everybody was a Hall of Famer. It was Peter Gammons on baseball, Bob Ryan on basketball, Will McDonough on football, Bud Collins on tennis. So when the Globe made me the first woman to cover the NFL was, I mean, massively uh pressure and uh you know they had no provisions there were no ladies rooms in many stadiums because they'd never had women there were uh chuck fairbanks the coach thought it was from mars uh susan and i of course she's one of my best friends we talk about this a lot uh just how people think it was the 1800s but um the players who were the best to me howard were the blacks uh, Tony McGee, Sugar Bear Hamilton, because they said they knew what it was like to be the only one. But, uh, you know, it was such a cultural, no provisions for equality. I'd stand in the parking lot after the game to get uh, talk to the players. And I'd have to make a decision, you know, do uh, I'm covering the Patriots for the Globe, but the Steelers won. So if I go over there and talk to Terry Bradshaw in the parking lot, that means I won't get Steve Grogan. But I think it made me a very good reporter. I had to do it all myself. Uh, the transition to TV was um, very frightening for me. I, uh, the only woman CBS they'd had Phyllis George, you know, who's great, wonderful woman. But um, heck, she was Miss America, <laughs> and uh, I actually followed Irv Cross on the NFL Today. But uh, I was very nervous and. Ted Shaker and Neil Pilsen gave me great opportunities, and they said, you know, just be yourself, be yourself. But it's hard to be yourself when you never, I didn't get to make mistakes in Albuquerque or Des Moines. I went right from the Globe print to network television and all the big events they have. So, I mean, I had a lot of bad hats. Remember my hat phase? That was really bad. I remember we were doing a... a Bears playoff game, and you know, it's so freezing, right, in Soldier Field, and Ted Shaker came running out of the truck right before I was going to go on, I was rehearsing to myself, and he said, Leslie, you have got to take that hat off. <laughs> well, I thought it was this be beautiful electric blue, you know, nice hat, and Ted said, it looks like a satellite dish, you have got to take that off. But now, of course, Phyllis would understand, I had hat hair by then, right, I wasn't going to take it off. Of course not. After of course so anyway, not. I had a lot of uh, a lot of things that I just had to be trial and error for myself. I knew the sports, but I I didn't know TV or the impact of that audience. So yeah, it was a real kind of two steps forward, one step back for a while. But well, you know, like you said, we got to talk to all the great people. Well, you've uh, you grew up in an area that was a hotbed for sports in Boston, covering the Red Sox or the Patriots or the Celtics, certainly and. I got a chance to call Celtic games when Rick Pitino went to Boston, and he actually was the one that, that gave me the kiss on the cheek to, uh, to say, okay, fine, we want you here. Well, here is a place where there's championship banners hanging all over the place in Boston, uh, and, and the history of Boston uh, certainly has been well documented. But now when you look at the, during this offseason of the NFL, Tom Brady leaves Boston after 20 years, 
leaves New England after 20 years. Gronkowski uh, basically engineers a trade where the Patriots send him to Tampa Bay. So when, when Brady leaves the Patriots and Belichick doesn't have him as his quarterback for the first time in two decades, which man, Belichick or Brady, has more pressure on him to succeed this year? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think it's kind of equal. I mean, we've both known Belichick. Uh, can you imagine, I, at one point, knew Bill Belichick so well, he would send me a Christmas card, and he would write in little tiny letters on the bottom right, Bill Belichick. <laughs> like, I didn't know that this was coming, or who it was. But, uh, you know, I think Bill's attitude is on to Cincinnati. Uh, he uh, he knows, you know, he builds his teams, as you well know, from the line, the defensive line, the offensive line, and then he had the blessing of Tom Brady. But uh, I do think he's, you know, he's so savvy. He's been ahead of the league for years. And, uh, you know, this year I think will be a little rough. And I don't know, what does it say to you? Does it say to you that Brady saw even though he has a couple good receivers in Tampa Bay, did he see, no, I need Gronk, or that was just because they are so comfortable? Because we can't really know what Gronk has right left, can we? Well, let's face it. The last three years, he's had a lot of injuries. I think he's missed like 30 games in the last three years. So uh, I'm not worried about that. I mean, let's face it. He hasn't played in a year. And Tom Brady, no matter how you cut the cake, is going to be 43 years old by the start of the season. He's, 40, he's not going to get better at 43. He's going to be an upgrade over uh, Jameis Winston, who threw 30 interceptions last year. But Tom Brady has energized the town of Tampa. I had Gene Deckerhoff on with me yesterday, the voice of the Tampa Bay Bucks. He said the city, the city of Tampa is going crazy having Tom Brady as their quarterback. Yeah, they should be. I mean, I just saw where Mahomes now is the first time in, what, 10 years that He's outsold, anyone's outsold Brady, but they should be really excited. He's so disciplined. He's so dynamic. He's, uh, he works, he, he's one of those players, uh, you know, uh, like a Larry Bird, um, that he never, or Michael Jordan, he does not ask anything of you that he doesn't do himself. And uh, I think it'll be very exciting. I mean, the division, though, you know, you're going against Breeze, you're going against Matt Ryan. It's uh, it's not going to be, you know, in the AFC East, he's to just wake up and be 6-0. and So <laughs> I, I don't know. I think, but I can't wait. Uh, and the NFL has changed. The quarterback position has changed so much. It's a Lamar Jackson league, it seems, right now, except for Brady, Breeze, a couple of them, maybe Philip Rivers will have a renaissance. But uh, it certainly will make, um, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't been to Tampa in a, in a while, and, uh, you know, we'll probably both be headed there. At some point. Well, you were enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, an enormous honor. Uh, you've been in, uh, in other halls of fame as well. So, I mean, to say that you're a groundbreaker, can you, can you deal with that in a sober way to where you realize what you've accomplished in your career is, um, is astounding, number one. Number two, uh, the amount of things that you've covered, it shows how, uh, how um, versatile you have been in your career. And I, I think what you've done is phenomenal. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I, I finally, I do accept it now uh, because for a long time I just wanted to blend in 
But, uh, yeah, I do accept it. I look back now, and it was always the first, the first on the World Series broadcast, the first on the Final Four broadcast, the first on the NBA broadcast, the only woman to have presented. Oh, that was funny. When I was the only woman still to have presented the Lombardi Trophy, and uh, it it was, uh, yeah, it was wild. It was 1992, and it was when the Redskins beat Buffalo, and... uh, we were in the production meeting, of which you've been in a million of them, and uh, Ted Shaker said, okay, so here's how it's going to go. You know, the formats are 100 pages long. So we're going through the pregame and then the game and now the postgame. And Ted Shaker says, okay, so for the postgame, now this is while Brent Musburger and Terry Bradshaw, people like that, are in the room. And Ted says, yes, and for the postgame, Leslie Visser is going to present the trophy. <laughs> and everybody's mouth, including mine, were like, what, are you kidding? But, but uh, it was, uh, I, I was, I, I, I had to say to myself for all these things that people must think I can do it or they wouldn't ask me. Yeah. So I tried to use that for confidence. But I think I have the same three elements that you have and that all broadcasters who've lasted decades have. I think you have to have knowledge. Knowledge is unassailable. I think you have to have passion, right? If you don't love it, don't do it. And I think you have to have stamina because there are a lot of really tough days. And for women, you know, nobody ever along the way teaches you that you're going to be humiliated. So you have to accept, uh, you know, percentage of that. So I think if you have those three elements, you'll have a career. All right, real quick, you got about 30 seconds. Tell me about 2013. You threw out the first pitch at a Red Sox game. Oh, it was unbelievable. Thank you for asking. It was, um, uh, I got great advice from Louis Tion. He said, just throw it up in the air and let gravity take it down because most people, you know, they strong arm it, guys, you know, and it bounces. But then the worst part was Big Poppy saying to me, he called me Lily. Oh, Lily, Lily lives on the internet, gonna live forever. You know, don't wanna make a fool of yourself, Lily. So <laughs> I had the good and the bad. <laughs> well, you've been a first in so many things, but the, you weren't the first in one thing. The first woman ever to appear in the press box at Harvard Stadium was my wife, Phyllis. Oh, uh, and still the best part of you, Howard. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're a thousand percent right. I Leslie, am. it's great talking to you. We'll, we'll hook up again at some point. Please do. Love to all. Thank you, Howard. Thanks. Leslie Visser, she's a piece of work. And that's being kind. She, uh, she's done it all. She's done it all. She's fought battles, fought a lot of battles. I'm looking forward to it. I want you to stay safe. I want you to, to, to uh, just be safe and just listen to what the experts tell you. I'm Howard David. This is Howard David Live. Thanks for being a part of the program.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.